0: The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. (laughs) All right, we're going to go live click and we're live it is Wednesday December 1st 2021 502 p.m. we are two minutes late because Stuart Baker was telling a uh, amusing story about Michigan uh, and I um, And uh, I know that some of you have waited with bated breath for 24 hours for this. So I am going to give you an update. I did get a a response from Clothing Monster um, and uh, about the fate of Fluffy Poodle Shirt. Uh, I just want to read it to you. Uh, It says, Dear Benjamin, we are investigating why you did not receive the third T-shirt We will get back to you ASAP about this. Unfortunately, we do not have a possibility to participate with you live show during the due to Christmas period. Our phone number is 917-720-3320. It is also available on the website and they usefully include a screenshot. We apologize for any inconvenience we might have caused. Thank you, customer service. Now, this raises several questions. Um, the first is whether uh, Mr. or Mrs. Monster's uh, actual name is Mr. or Mrs. Service, uh, first name <laughs> customer, because the, 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 it is not signed Clothing Monster, Mr. Monster or Ms. Monster, it's signed uh, customer service. The second is I think the uh, uh, improbable English usage related to the impossibility of coming on the show to discuss the fate of Fluffy Poodle Shirt uh, suggests that we are actually dealing with a foreign operation here. Uh, And the third, and that raises questions of foreign interference in dog shirts, um, (laughs) which I'm very concerned about. Um, And then finally, Just to be uh, candid, uh, look, they did catch me in an error. They do have a phone number on their website. I was wrong about that. I always try to correct my errors. Yes, they have a phone number and it goes straight to voicemail and they don't answer it. So um, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but there is a pending investigation of the fate (laughs) of Fluffy Poodle Shirt. We will get to the bottom of this. And in the meantime, we have Stuart Baker here, and I have exactly two things to tell you about Stuart Baker. The first is that, um, and I'm sure he's gonna say some things today that are gonna piss some of you off, Uh, that's okay. Stuart is the closest thing to an intellectual mentor that I have in the world of national security law. I met him when I was a 23 year old reporter and he was the former general counsel of the National Security Agency. And the, the Congress of the United States had just augmented the jurisdiction of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in order to solve the problem of the physical search conducted by the FBI against Aldrich Ames. And I had to write a story about it. And I called Stuart Baker because he was at Steptoe and Johnson having just left NSA, this was the first time he returned to Steptoe and Johnson, or maybe the second. Uh, and he does hold the record for returning to Steptoe and Johnson the most times. <laughs> um, and this was the first or second time. but uh, And uh, he took a young uh, reporter of a lefty civil libertarian bent, i.e. me, and converted him to the dark side. Uh, over a number of years of uh, great conversations. And, uh, uh, and so I want to say whatever Stewart says today to piss you off, deal with it. Um, uh, uh, and the second thing I want to say about Stewart is one day I asked him where his politics came from. And he said, you know, that's an interesting question, Ben. I'm an anti-authoritarian, but all of my authority figures have been liberals and um and that is i think the the secret to stewart most of it is just him being mischievous and tweaking libs stewart welcome to the show it's a pleasure to
1: be here it's a pleasure to be here It, it it does it is discouraging to reflect uh, the the arc of our career since those uh, 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 conversations says mine has stalled and yours has gone through the roof. Uh, so it is.
0: Uh, what do you mean? You're sitting there with a parrot. I'm wearing a dog shirt. <laughs> That's true. The, the parrot is good. The parrot is from my uh, human
1: rights trip to El Salvador in 1985 or six, uh, I, and uh, it, the parrot has held up much better than the country.
0: Yeah. Uh, El Salvador not doing so well. They're doing better than Honduras right now.
1: Yeah. I, I remember there was a, uh, when I would, was down there, they had a uh, poll and they asked people in El Salvador, would you move to the United States if you could? And something like 75% of the population said, yep, tomorrow.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately there is, actually in your, in your former uh, DHS so Stewart wears many hats. He's a national security lawyer, but he was also Mike Chertoff's dep- sort of policy deputy at DHS in the sort of second half of the Bush administration. Uh, and in that capacity, you actually had to deal with a lot of immigration stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, I,
1: I was kind of the policy lead for the second effort to get uh, a comprehensive immigration deal through. Uh, it failed, as did the first. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, there's that Casey Stengel story about uh, uh, the um, shortstop who uh, keeps dropping uh, uh, grounders, and Stengel goes out and says, let me show you how to do it. And the first uh, ball that is hit to him hits a pebble and hits him in the nose, and he throws down his glove, and he says to the shortstop, he says, uh, you've screwed this, po- this position up so bad, nobody can play it. what we
0: call comprehensive (laughs) immigration. So, so the Bush administration, for those who don't remember, was actually seeking a policy rather similar to the policy that Joe Biden purports to want now. Um, The Obama administration was something of a deviation from that. The Trump administration was a deviation. Like, when you look at the state of the border now and what happened during the Trump administration, as well as the incredible refugee flow or, or migrant flow that's happening from the Northern Triangle. Like, what would be the right policy for somebody of, you know, what's the right way to think about what to do about the border at this point? So I would, I would start from the point of view that you would think would
1: be obvious we can't take everybody there are a billion people who would who would come to the united states if they if they had the ticket and and were allowed uh, and uh, um we can't take everybody so then the question becomes well how are we going to decide who we're going to take uh, it it seems to me that it makes sense for us to control that decision um and for us to to try to get people who will make us a more successful country Uh, and that means as many skilled people as we can get and to uh, um, focus on the skills of uh, the immigrants since we have a a a scarce resource that lots of people want we ought to uh, get something for it which is on the whole getting good um, employable uh, smart people who will uh, work hard and make the country more successful. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's really controversial, but it is not our policy. Our policy now is to take the relatives of people who are already here legally, uh, plus a few small number of people that uh, uh, tech companies want to bring in, and then right. to let um, occasional you know, large numbers of people just walk across the border and stay um, without any uh, uh, serious vetting. There's some vetting, but uh, without making any determination other than, well, they they showed up here. I guess we're going to keep them. So I I think that's that's the problem we're facing now. Uh, The people who govern those flows are quite sophisticated. Uh, there's a whole organization of people who are trying to facilitate illegal immigration and um, they get paid for it. So uh, uh, they they have good information about what will happen if you cross the border illegally. Um, and every once in a while, because of the complexity of the system, it turns out that if you cross the border, it, the U.S. facilities for uh deporting people and for holding them until deportation break down and people just have to be admitted uh if they make a claim of asylum they will stay for five or six or ten years while their claim is adjudicated by that point nobody is going to send them home uh and they will have worked for 10 years in the united states which is a great deal too um so everybody's going to take that deal uh, and so my my sense is you have to make sure that you don't have a collapse of the ability to process people as they cross the border and persuade the people who are behind them that this is not the way to get into the United States. We've, we've completely failed. I, I, I don't think that a wall is a particularly impressive response to that. I don't think Trump actually, Trump was really a big business Republican, uh, but with attitude. Uh, and so he didn't really want to do any of the things that would make it hard to get a job after you come here illegally, because he probably had employed a lot of those people illegally himself. Um, and so uh, we haven't had any effort to discourage people from coming here, other than stopping them at the border. Once they got past the border, they were they were golden, um, and that's probably not a workable way to discourage large numbers of people from crossing the border.
2: Um, so, but we're not here to talk immigration, we're here to talk cyber. Um, so I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna, first of all, I wanna say that I'm ever so slightly obsessed with you um, because, <laughs> um, um, because like, so I'm used to people making insane claims all the time and making arguments for it. They're called philosophers. Um, normally uh, lawyers don't do that. Um, and, um, you, what I find really so fascinating about you is you, you're, you're really, uh, if you, uh, my humble opinion, you're really smart and you're really, um, knowledgeable and I'm just really so curious, first of all, how you like became such a, um, Cybersecurity law cyber privacy uh tech um god um and also um uh wh- why are you um so conservative
1: yeah, good question uh, or as as david chris said uh, just before our last uh, episode he said uh, you know i i just love the podcast even the batshit crazy crazy parts <laughs> right
0: right <laughs> We're gonna no, get, to get to the batshit. We're gonna get to the batshit crazy parts in no, a minute,
2: Stuart. <laughs> no, but the, the thing is, but it's not. It, it, that's the, that's the great thing about it. It's this is not info. Uh, this is not info Wars, like crazy uh, crazy stuff. Like you have like really interesting, very um, well thought through um, ideas, and so um, uh, I'm really fascinated by. This is uh,
0: this is a, this is a really that. polite. Way of saying what's a nice girl like
2: you doing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly. <it. laughs> exactly. So let me let me let me start with getting into cyber. Um, it, it, the um, I ended up at the National Security Agency as the General Counsel because I got called by they they had a problem. I think recruiting. Uh, And they kind of made a second effort, and they asked a woman who was at the State Department, who had been general counsel of NSA and CIA, uh, to do some recruiting. And she called um, uh, Monroe Lee, who had been the legal advisor of the uh, uh, State Department, and asked him if he had any ideas. He was my mentor at Steptoe. And he later said in a moment of candor, uh, I said, I gave her her your name, Stuart, because I thought you were smart enough not to take the job. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Uh, But I did take the job and there's a story there. But uh, um, when I got there, they were in a death fight uh, with Microsoft which believed in the coming of the Internet and believed that the Internet really should be Microsoft network uh, and it would provide everything that that we want from the Internet. Um, And one of the things that they were sure was going to happen is Internet commerce. People would buy stuff on the Internet and they would have to use their credit card and they'd be afraid to use their credit card if they didn't have encryption to protect it. And so uh microsoft said so uh, our business model requires that we offer really good encryption around the world and nsa's vision of the world was nobody would have good encryption outside the united states because um nsa wanted to be able to listen to their conversations and it was as fundamental to nsa's sense of uh what it was as breaking other people's business model and turning it into software was to microsoft Um, And uh, because, you know, the NSA traces its history back to breaking um, uh, codes of the Japanese and uh, the Nazis.
2: For everyone, just so everyone knows, this is 1994 when Microsoft, instead of going to the Internet, tried to create this Microsoft um, um, kind of walled garden at the same time that you're having the crypto wars and the clipper chip. So I I had never connected these two things together. But it's it's fascinating. And and
0: in this period, as the sitting general counsel of NSA, Stewart went and gave a speech. Was it at Black Hat?
1: No, it was Computers Freedom
0: and Privacy. I don't think it exists
1: anymore.
0: And, And he opened the speech that said, with a line that I'll never forget, it said, with all the enthusiasm, of a Southern Baptist church being asked to turn its pulpit over on a Sunday morning to the devil. The Computers (laughs) Freedom and Privacy (laughs) Conference has invited me to speak to you today. (laughs) It's true, and
1: I continued in that vein for a considerable period of time and then <laughs> I uh, appeared in uh, uh, in Wired magazine they turned it into an article uh, in in the the very first year that Wired magazine existed uh, um, and uh, uh, yes it was it was. I have to say, irreverent and smart ass and anti-authoritarian if you thought that Wired magazine and uh, Microsoft were authority figures. Uh, um, <laughs> it, it, so yes, so as I, a representative of the National Security, <laughs> Agency. Exactly. No, but I, my goal, my, my job was, they basically said to me, your job is to is to head this off. Uh, and, wow. uh, and and meanwhile, all these, you know people with neckbeards were telling me, Uh, this is the future, you have to understand it. And so I actually said, okay, if I'm going to fight on this ground, I have to understand why they're saying these things, why they think the internet is such a big deal, et cetera, et cetera. And so I got into it and, you know, they persuaded me that, you know, the internet was going to be a big deal. Um, And that shaped my approach to my practice when I got out. Uh, It shaped my advocacy while I was in. Um, And... And that's really where my career took a, a turn that it has never quite recovered from uh, uh, doing um, technology law. And it's it's fun. I mean, you have to learn something new every week or you're out of date.
0: And that's exciting. What about the part of Scott's question, how you became such a, a wingnut?
2: Yeah. So
0: I, <laughs> I, I
1: I think it, it is true that I—I I, I actually think I said that uh, I grew up in a household where the ultimate authority figure was the national, uh, the New York Times editorial board. <laughs> I, it, it's a problem you've had from time to time
0: too. It is. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Although is, I've this... I've moderated my response in a way yes. that you have not exactly. <laughs> so uh, I want to pull the the conversation back to an area where. I think David may have been talking about when he said the phrase batshit crazy. And I want to actually pose this question to you. You are, I think, the most respectable and maybe the only respectable um, voice who argues uh, that the tech company algorithms really are biased against conservatives. and. I want to give you a chance to justify that because most people I know, including people you've argued about with it on the on the Cyberlaw podcast, uh, believe there is no empirical evidence for it whatsoever and actually believe the opposite may be true, that the platforms kind of bend over backwards to not get rid of uh, conservative accounts. So, what is the case for for an audience of people who are primed to understand the basic claim as lunacy? What is the non-lunatic case that Twitter and Facebook actually have an algorithmic bias against conservative voices?
1: So, let's 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 start with institutional uh, uh, incentives. I uh, the. I mean, if if you don't believe that the New York Times is has a liberal bias, then I'm not going to persuade you. But I I think it's indisputable that the New York Times leans left uh, in in the um, in the kinds of cases it decides to promote. Uh, everybody remembers, I hope, the Augusta National uh, 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 debacle where they just campaigned against the the Augusta National Country Club for for months uh, for something I forget women or. I uh, and it was just because they had a, a thing about the uh, uh, Augusta uh, National Country Club, um, and on and on. Um, but if you look at the workforce of the New York Times, it's because they, they they by and large lean left. You don't you don't see people um, being tossed off the, uh, um, the New York Times uh, um, uh, payroll because they have said something wildly conservative. They may have been tossed off because it was too conservative for the current workforce, but the tweets that come out of that workforce are, you know, when they're crazy, they're crazy left. Um, And the only workforce that is more crazy left on average, uh, I would argue, is the workforce in Silicon Valley where um, the, Donations, contributions to campaigns are 95% democratic or more. Um, The workforce uh, is raising questions about whether they should even work for the Defense Department of the United States. Uh, um, Those kinds of questions are all questions that you only ask if you're in a pretty liberal filter bubble already. Uh, So why would they not? want to express their values through the controls that they have. Um, And then you look at decisions. I mean, all of this at that, at this point, it becomes anecdotal. Uh, You cannot say uh, as I I recognize there are people who will say, well, gee, look uh, how many of the stories that are uh, popular on Facebook are from conservatives. They're obviously uh, if anything, leaning to the right, but I think, you know, you can, you can, Cut that either way. Uh, maybe if they were not holding down conservative uh, um, uh, uh, share of the uh, uh, mind share, uh, there'd be even more popularity. Uh, so all you know is that with this level of control, you get a, a, a substantial number of people sharing conservative views. I think that's because most people are conservative. Uh, and the country is more conservative than the coasts and then the the elitist uh, the elites that read and make a lot of money believe they should be
0: uh but but stewart isn't isn't it possible that what you're actually seeing is and i say this as somebody who you know i worked for 10 years at the washington post I don't have a shadow of a doubt that there's a left lean in, in, in yeah. major print media in the United States. And, um, uh, I, so I have no argument with you there. But it, it seems to me the most obvious explanation for the removal of conservative versus liberal accounts is that there is a violence in contemporary conservative rhetoric that does not exist in contemporary left of center rhetoric. And so you have all these people. Who, uh, who their left counterparts are not making statements that could reasonably be understood as threats, and they are. Um, and so they get removed, at, but the actual bias is a bias in favor of the rules of the terms of service. So I, I, it, it, it,
1: that's, a, that's a, a possible argument Maybe you just haven't had have been exposed to enough left-leaning uh, violent threats. So there's oh, you, re- of
0: you remember that I'm the guy who uh, went up against Glenn Greenwald. That's that right. That yeah. right. <laughs> I, and, and Glenn, that's like I know Glenn. of what I speak about
1: yeah, the left. Okay. So, yes, and I, I I got some of that. I got a, I got brief blowback from Glenn to on a few of my uh, uh, tweets. But let, let me let me pick uh, one example that I think is striking because it shows that the rules may be the same, but how they're applied is uh, hard to justify. And that's the New York Post articles about Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, there was never a sh- any evidence that that was a Russian scam, that, a, a, a misinformation, disinformation operation. There was a letter from a bunch of people in the heat of a campaign who said, well, that's the kind of thing the Russians would do if they could. And that's and they they're all from the intelligence community, and all of Silicon Valley seized on that to say, well, you can't publish that, you you can't repeat that that story. That story has turned out to be true, and it is a shocking scandal. It's it's still producing shocking scandals about uh, um, Hunter Biden's uh, ties to the Chinese government, uh, uh, and to say we're not going to allow you to tweet that story. I, I, I think you, you can't interp- interpret that as anything other than we don't like this story and we think it will hurt uh, uh, the Biden campaign. So we're going to squash it. Uh, I, I just don't I don't see another explanation. And I don't think that uh, you know that it wasn't misinformation. There was never a case that it, a good case that it was a Russian uh, uh, disinformation operation, and nobody ever changed their mind effectively. At least not until the election was passed. Uh, I don't think you would have that with something that could change the election, that would have hurt Trump. And if it would hurt Trump, uh, it was gonna it was gonna be distributed uh,
2: uh, until somebody proved it was wrong. I I, so I I think I, so I, I think that one can see what's happening now is in some sense an overcompensation for what was what happened in 2016, which um was, which did seem like Carl Schmidt's dictum that cons- that liberals can't tell the difference between friend and enemy. That they and so they the as as the line has moved um, uh, um, uh, should go the other way um, uh, right um, the center keeps on moving and it's it's really hard to, it's really hard for these um, social media platforms to figure out where the disposable income is it, 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 it is headed um, uh, it seems to me. Um, that um you know it's not so much conservative um by a liberal bias against conservatives but it's trying to figure out um how to like where where the advertising money is um and so i think it it, it, it much more cynical than than you 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 seem to think of it but i i want to just i want to bracket that for a moment and i want to ask you as somebody who um listens to your podcast all the time and i love it and i what i want to i want everyone um uh to to know that i think that the, this is a phenomenal the cyber law podcast i think is a phenomenal podcast i think it's really done extremely well you will learn and an available on money. lawfare yes yeah. oh oh okay i i mean i think it's a really just absolutely you run a great show i learned so much from it but the one thing i have to say that's been slightly upsetting to me during the trump administration is i feel like um you don't appreciate the danger associated with um trumpism um that the gadfly in you um is um is strong um and you uh, And I respect playing devil's advocate, but I'm wondering how much devil's advocate you played vis-a-vis the Trump administration and whether you are worried, like in your heart, <laughs> worried about where the country is headed, not from cancel culture, wokeism, the New York Times editorial board, but from the other side that really does seem to be, I would say, anti-democratic.
1: So I, uh, yeah, that that, that's that's fair. I, if you've listened to the podcast, you know I'm not exactly Donald Trump's biggest fan. Uh, I think he's incompetent uh, and um, uh, narcissistic, and in would be a disaster. It would be a disaster to have him back Um, because um, the thing that kept him from really screwing up was that he hired a bunch of traditional Republicans uh, and did not realize that they were going to uh, sometimes tell him that he couldn't do things he wanted to do. But by the end of his administration, he realized that if you hire second-rate people and put their job at risk, uh, uh, they will come in and tell you all kinds of things you can do. Uh, and they'll they'll do them for you. Uh, uh, and uh, um, it, instead of having that in the last, Eight months of the first term, we're going to have that in the first eight months of the second term if he gets elected. So I I, I don't want him to come back. I, uh, uh, but I, at the same time I uh, I thought that the effort to impeach him and to tag him with the uh, uh, with the Russia 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 gate uh, uh, was an effort to basically undo the election uh and treat him as illegitimate and that that was showing contempt for the people who voted for him uh we voted for him uh, and you know uh we're we should live with the consequences and follow our traditional uh approaches to uh, just uh, to uh, politicians we don't like um so that's kind of my to the extent it's nuanced that's my nuanced take on on trump um but i don't know that i am completely convinced i think if he is if he is a authoritarian he's a really incompetent authoritarian He's just bad at this. I mean, this, is, this was uh, uh, Ben's uh, early take, right? Uh, uh, that the, uh, the incompetence was going to override the malice. Uh, and by and large, that was true. Um, uh, so, I, and, you know, to say, oh, it's such an anti-author- it's such a, um, authoritarian uh, uh, culture on the right, I just don't see it that way. Uh, I think the people on the right are mostly doing things that they learned from watching the left. Uh, yeah, and, so, so, uh,
2: so I would love to hear you say a little bit more about that because that um, just strikes me. I mean, I, I let the Supreme Court in a five to four decision in Bush versus Gore elect selected um, uh, George W. Bush um, as president and the Democratic candidate said okay rule of law um i i, I just I, well, I, when, he, when, he, when he'd run out of other options yes <laughs>
0: Well, well I, when, I, when but, trump ran, ran
2: out of other options, of there was, options there was,
1: there was yeah, a, no, an not. insurrection right. You're right trump trump shouldn't have done that i, I completely agree I, I, uh, but
2: not should it not should have not just should have done that but it goes against everything that we hold sacred, and important in this country. It's not um, a small thing. It's what we, I thought we stood for. And so um, I do not see that on the center left at all. You would never hear the New York Times um, uh, editorial board come out and um, uh, push for Al Gore to uh, ignore the... The decision of the high court. Um, so I, 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 have, I just have to say that that that, that I, I don't. I, you're such a you're you're such a smart, intelligent, experienced man. It seems um, uh, trollish um, so to I, deny.
1: And, and maybe it is right? because we've we've established what I am now. Uh, yeah. I I do have a eight. A, a, significant troll to uh, element to my personality uh I, but i you know if the new york times did not exactly say oh you can't passively pack the supreme court that would that would be shocking uh you know that's an idea that suddenly is uh, in bloom uh it's not going to happen uh, uh, but it's certainly as counter to our norms as refusing to accept that you lost the election. Um, And I, you know, for all the talk, I I completely agree. There was not a uh, enormous outpouring of uh, computer-generated election fraud. At the same time, I think that if you are a Republican, you're entitled to say hey, you know, all of that stuff that they told us was about uh, making it easier to vote in the coronavirus turned out to be really ignoring the risk of fraud. And we don't know how many ballot harvesting uh, initiatives, initiatives were carried out, how many uh, um, uh, uh, ballots were uh, dropped off uh, uh, because they could be, because they, that was suddenly acceptable uh, because of the laws that were passed or the laws that weren't passed but the decrees that were issued I think, with coronavirus as the reason. You know you could say okay that was a legitimate response to the coronavirus and maybe it looks that way if you're on the left but if you're on the right it sure looks very convenient for a well-organized bunch of people who want to uh, maximize their ability to uh, Get out the vote in ways that would previously have not been considered legitimate, um, eh, and so feeling that the election was tilted by um, Democrats taking advantage of something, you know, not letting a crisis go to waste. Uh, uh, given how close the election was, I, you know, I I completely understand why people feel like they were robbed. I, uh, uh, you know, my view is uh, uh, whatever it was that Goldwater uh, said about the uh, Panama Canal, hey, we stole it fair and square. We get to keep it. You know, uh, if, 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 if if the Democrats did this and stole the election, well, fine. You know, that's our our general principle is
0: if you can steal it that way, fine, you get to keep it. But Stuart, just to be clear, this was mostly Republican officials who did this. Right. I mean, the. The uh, the the actions that people are objecting to in places like Michigan and and uh, and Wisconsin and and uh, 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 Georgia uh, less so in Pennsylvania, but to some extent these are not the actions of mostly Democratic officials. I, I I don't know.
1: Uh, you're right that in some of those close uh, states, it was Republicans, uh, and you know they may have been persuaded. Oh my God, this is a crisis. Uh, you've got to do something. Uh, um, but uh, it certainly turned out to be very convenient. That plus uh, all the money that was uh, spent by fairly lefty groups on. Um, taking over responsibilities that the uh, secretaries of state couldn't actually carry out and saying, well, that's all right, we'll we'll help staff your office. Uh, And there are reasons to think that those efforts might have tilted in favor of getting out the vote in uh, uh, high Democratic areas, which also urban areas, which were easier to to reach. But, you know, I all of that strikes me as reasonable objections to the way the election was handled in retrospect, given how close it was.
0: Uh, I want to ask one more question before we go to the audience. One thing that I think all of your, uh, many of your center right to center left to even some far left uh, friends have puzzled about with you over the last few years is, Stuart, one thing that you have always stood for, Consistently across time, administration, policy dispute is nobody has ever had an unpleasant conversation with you. Nobody. You're the concept. Like when you're arguing with with uh, people, these are the most pleasant arguments around, uh, and. You never get personal. Glenn like Greenwald has it, come close. <laughs> well, I mean, Glenn, I mean, right. we're talking we're about we're,
2: people we're, here. We're, we're, <laughs> right, I was going to say, we're talking about human beings, right.
0: Right, but also, also, I venture to guess that if something got unpleasant between you and Glenn, it was not you that got unpleasant. It could be. Um, but, um, but what you're defending intellectually is a culture that is, among other things, relentlessly unpleasant. And um, one of the things that I find jarring about, and you're not a defender of Trump by any means, but you are a sort of anti-anti-Trump person. Yes. Um, And one of the things that I always experience a little bit of cognitive dissonance about that is that the the intellectual culture of this sort of nasty pugilistic ad hominem is so on you. And um, I'm curious, like, does that bother you that like the 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 world, the gentility that you represent and the friendliness and combative fun that you represent is nothing in the world that 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 you're criticizing people for taking offense at well maybe, maybe you know I, I, I uh, somebody once said, you know,
1: what's really frustrating about Baker is that he can say the most outrageous things I and not make me feel like he's insulting me <laughs> 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 and so it may just be. Uh, affect uh, over content I um, I, I,
2: I, 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 think the, I think I think I, I, I think your targets know they've been insulted they just don't get angry that's a different well, that <laughs> right. yeah. right.
0: all right David box you have a question in the queue and your camera is not on but we can hear you that is uh, anticipating a subject that Stuart really wants to talk about. Uh, he and I have been going through a piece of his about it um, back and forth. So uh, please revert, sir, to your original question, unless you uh, really want to talk about uh, your second question. Well, the original question hasn't it already been answered in terms of can... Um can algorithms have bias? Well, I guess- No, no, I think Stuart has, has not yet begun to speak on that subject. <laughs> Mr. Baker, it's great to see you. I'm sorry that you can't see me. A long time, long time listener, first time talker to over Crowdcast, but we did meet at uh, RSA uh, a couple of years ago, back when people met in person. Um, Stuart, you have said on multiple occasions and very, very emphatically that algorithms cannot be biased and, and it almost sounds like you've said, oh, this is just a lefty conspiracy that caused us to not like algorithms. So I'm interested in your thoughts. Okay,
1: so first, I, I may I may actually go to RSA this year. I, 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 it's always a close call, but uh, <laughs> so I look forward. Maybe I'll see you there. Right? Um, although you know, I, nobody ever sees anybody at RSA, as far as I can see. Because um, it's one so giant I'll, I'll infomercial. That, uh, algorithms can't be biased. Um, they can be. Uh, obviously, they can they can be inaccurate in ways that. Uh, uh, could have a disparate impact on the basis of a variety of uh, uh, capabilities. Uh, um, a, and, um, and indeed, you can, you can write algorithms that are biased if you give them uh, a data set that itself has the bias. Um, so, for example, that uh, if you wanted to take your algorithm, your, your decisions about uh, how to control, uh, how to moderate content, And if Facebook said, we're just going to take our current decisions and we're going to have the machines learn how to do it from watching our current decisions, I would expect that it would recapitulate the basic um, approach that uh, uh, we've seen already. Uh, I do think, and and, and this is where uh, I've been having a back and forth with uh, Ben, which I I really value, I have to say. He makes me a better thinker. Uh, The the notion that AI bias against uh, women or racial minorities is somehow uh, the natural state of artificial intelligence and that we have to do something very special and we have to um, uh, take uh, special care uh, uh, to address that. I think that's the product of a combination of researcher, Bias and press bias, um, and that the the data just doesn't support that very well. Uh, uh, there were, uh, there is data that says that uh, uh, it was harder for algorithms to match up darker faces and, to some extent, younger faces and female faces uh, back in 2016. Uh, those um, uh, indications of inaccuracy and the biases in where the inaccuracy shows up are disappearing and the last data i saw there actually was a bias for um being able to match female faces that was uh, uh you know was more accurate on female than uh, on uh, male faces so uh, we've been sold the story that the uh, uh the algorithmic bias is a profound and enduring problem and that the only way to solve it is to impose fairness on it. And if Ben has gotten to the end of the, of the draft I sent him, he knows what I'm going to say. I haven't started. I haven't
0: started the new draft yet. So okay, OK, I'm behind no, I,
1: there. There are people who uh, first there's lots of 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 pressure now. You can't sell a, a, an algorithm that does face recognition or a lot of other things without attesting a to its fairness. And there are people who will let you attest to the fairness of your algorithm. And the way they do it is they say, hey, why don't we make up a world in which there is no difference? Right. We live in a world where uh, men make more money than women. We will just imagine a world in which the incomes of men and women are the same. And we will construct an artificial intelligence algorithm on the basis of fictional data. Uh, and that fictional data then will be imposed on real data, which ends up basically being a kind of affirmative action program for whatever it is you're using the the AI for, uh, a quota system that nobody gets to see because all the shimming, all the, bi- the, the the debiasing they would say, but the biasing, I would say, of the algorithm has happened behind the scenes. And when you show up and start running it, you can't see it. Uh, and... I think that's a profound change in our political climate. Uh, You know, by and large, uh, the imposition of quotas when it's subjected to a vote fails. But if you can impose quotas by getting researchers who believe in them and journalists who believe in them and relatively well-to-do uh, uh, liberals uh, who believe in them to smuggle it into the, the algorithm, then you're going to get uh, your, uh, uh, your quoted relief without ever having to go through a democratic process on it. So I think that's a, a, a big problem. Uh, it's not quite the same as there is no bias. I think you can get bias. Uh, my worry now is that bias is being injected in the form of fake data and other tricks designed to achieve an artificial uh, um, uh, society
0: that uh, you know we'd all like to live in, but we don't live in. Michael Nelson, the floor is yours.
3: Thanks. Hey, Always good to see you, Stuart. Um, I'm going to pick up a little bit on a question that Tom Strand asked about uh, transparency, accountability, and national security.
0: Well, don't pick up too much on it, because Tom Strand is actually in the queue and is going to ask that question himself. So don't steal Tom's question.
3: I'm just going to give an example of transparency. We worked on clipper chip and encryption way back when, and I always thought that it would be wonderful if I could go out and actually talk about all the stuff that I learned in skiffs and in super secret briefings. I also went to Computers, Freedom and Privacy. Uh, I think it was a year after you did. I didn't learn from you, and I got heckled and ridiculed, and uh, ended up on C-SPAN in rotation at two o'clock in the morning for at least six <laughs> months. <laughs> it's
0: the highest form of fame.
3: Yeah, <laughs> I was being for for weeks and months. Right. But, but anyway, we, we call that we call that being canceled. But I knew if I could share more of what I knew that at least the smart people would say, you know, okay, I didn't realize all that electronic surveillance was having that much of an impact and that the world was this mu- that much safer because of what was being done. Do you think there's any any way that changing the debate and and, and actually being a lot more open about what kind of events have been prevented could, could make Americans and maybe even Europeans a little more likely to support rather than fear what NSA and the CIA do? So,
1: uh, first, it's great to, uh, to see you. Uh, uh, Mike Nelson was the most formidable wielder of analogies that I had to uh, argue with in the- And a, uh, and a
0: regular of member community. of the Greek Chorus, I wanna ask. Yes,
1: he, he, he's, uh, he's terrific. He once actually challenged me to a duel of analogies <laughs> <at 20 basis>.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, so I, I, first, there's really two things. I think the debate about about the clipper chip and encryption has moved to the point where everybody can grasp it uh, because it's now a law enforcement issue and it, it doesn't have to be cloaked in uh, national security and uh, uh, important things that we found out that we can't talk about. Uh, everybody knows there's criminal evidence that, that they're not able to get because of uh, 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 encryption. Uh, And that debate is now playing out in that context. Um, uh, And interestingly, uh, in Europe, it's probably more likely to result in controls on encryption than in the US, that's my guess. Certainly when you look at the UK um, uh, wall of establishment, lack of enthusiasm for uh, end-to-end encryption, um, it, it, I, I think the, the willingness to compromise encryption because of a faith in the social contract and the institutional um, uh, integrity of uh, law enforcement is it's stronger in Europe, oddly, than in the U.S. Um, but it, persuading the Europeans that they should stop screwing around with our intelligence capabilities and imposing say human rights obligations on um, NSA that they don't impose on any of their own internal and external intelligence agencies. Um, No, I think that uh, uh, in Brussels, nobody cares about national security, uh, but they love getting in the way of the United States. And this has been a perennial way to get uh, in the way of the United States and force the U.S. to come to the table and talk to them like uh, like equals. And they're, they're too enthusiastic about that ever to give it up.
0: Yeah, I just want to, as we say on this show, foot-stomp that point. I once had to go to Germany uh, to speak about NSA, uh, what what they called in Europe, La Faire NSA. Um, and... Um, And I was impressed in doing so at how the, um, of all the things I had ever read, seen, or people I had talked to about um, uh, uh, European attitudes toward what they call data protection and we call privacy and surveillance, um, uh, the person who had most prepared me for what was in the room was Stewart, and the reason was that uh, Stewart's basic thesis about European uh, privacy law is it is an attempt to regulate U.S. behavior, uh, and nothing could be, could have been a more accurate account of yeah. of what the Europeans in the room were fundamentally I, I... about, honestly.
2: I would just say that, like, Europe is a different country. Um, uh, <laughs> th- that was a joke. But um, but if they really do have, I just put uh, an incredibly good um, article in the chat, um, a link to the article in the chat by my colleague, Jim Whitman, showing that the culture of privacy in Europe is very different than in the United States and that we, I, I do remember, it must've been like six weeks ago, Stuart. And I, again, you know, you, you, you do well, how many podcast episodes have you done? Like 380 or something?
1: 385 this week. Oh, 385.
2: Yeah. And so uh, I would just say I was jogging in the park and I remember hearing you make fun of the Europeans for their privacy and then uh, for privacy um, uh, fetish, uh, maybe that was the word you used, but I, I, the word uh, it stuck in my mind. Um, but and then you complained that um, Gmail, uh, not Gmail, but Google was reading your Google Docs. Um, uh, and so, like the thing is, two things. First of all, uh, we we will only appreciate European attitudes towards privacy, if we don't see it as trying to troll the Americans or um, uh, kind of um, uh, sour grapes about European hegemony, uh, about American hegemony, but understand that the culture of privacy is very different in Europe, and they are arguing about things that um, um, are, are... Extraordinarily important to Europeans, in the same way in which Americans talk about their guns, um, that is just completely un, un, unimaginable to Europeans. Number one and number two is that when it happens to you—not you, Stuart, in particular—but when it happens, when your when one's privacy is invaded, it feels different. Um, I just want to throw that out there, and also to make I, 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 call it, does,
1: it, it does it does my my I have a more fully formed objection to privacy law, which probably we won't get into, but uh, uh, the short version is, it is so vague, because nobody really knows what privacy is, Uh, they just know it when they feel it, uh, because then it hurts, Um, eh, that um, the only way to write it down is to write down something that everyone violates all the time. Uh, And as we lose our uh, our sensitivity about a particular thing like our location history, um, it, we stop seeing it as a, a wrong and then the law stays on the books, but it's only used by powerful people to squelch unpowerful people. I, I,
2: I, I, I would agree. I, so, so that's why I like the Cyber Law Podcast so much. And again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug it because you actually, you, you point this out um, uh when it happens that the it, 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 they are often quite discriminatory and are used um, um, by legacy um, platforms to squelch um, uh, foreign um, uh, upstarts. Um, so I would just say I, I, yeah go
1: ahead. I'll just I'll just close by saying I, I actually spent uh, one, one year, Giving awards for the, the worst abuse of uh, 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 privacy law to serve the interests of the privileged. Um, and I called them the Privies. Uh, and we, we gave awards to a whole bunch of people. It was a lot of fun. I, sh- I, I should have continued it was just too much work.
0: I will just I will just say that I would not begrudge Europe any of its privacy, as Stuart would say fetishism, if they did not try to impose it on us. Paula, uh, the floor is yours. Uh, We apologize for allising you. It was not intentional. No, you're fine. Um, So I'm actually from the Metro Detroit area. My parents are Lebanese Catholics. So I understood a lot of your earlier references and it kind of plays into my question a little bit because I'm wondering how we have conversations about national security
3: both relating to the Middle East or when
0: we're talking about Southern border immigration without people acting in bad faith steering the conversation. And I mean, people that are actually racist versus the actual trade-offs that we have to make versus on like who we're gonna let in and morality and versus,
2: you know, efficiency.
1: Yeah, good question. First, I, w- I have to say, I remember, I, I grew up in the fifties in Dearborn when Pizza was sort of an exotic dish, you know, <laughs> one food. I, but every Saturday we got baklava. <laughs> uh, so I I think it is hard. It, it, we, we've just passed the point where this is going to be easy. On either side, I, I think there are plenty of people who uh, are taking Islamophobia as, uh, you know, um, trying to turn it into the uh, accusation from which everyone must flinch uh, in the way that racism is uh, and, and with some cynicism about it. Um, but a, a, that doesn't mean there aren't people who are um, reflexively uh, hostile to Islam because, you know, uh, their only experience with it was 9-11. Um, I don't know that there's a great response to that. I, it, part of it is uh, there's now a substantial, uh, not just uh, uh, Middle Eastern, but uh, Islamic population in the United States. And I like to think that we're going to end up with a an American Islam the way we have an American Catholicism. Uh, which is to say it's been filtered through a bunch of uh, 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 American values, political and otherwise. Uh, unfortunately, increasingly those values are, well, if you can catch somebody saying something that you can describe as racist, you win. Um, it, it, so that's not the most, an ideal approach. And we've had that for a long time. I mean, you, if, criticism of Israel tends to be Uh, shouted down uh, as, uh, you know, anti-Semitic if you're not careful. Um, So I don't have an answer to this. Uh, I do think we need to be careful about uh, um, who we let into the country and vetting them. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that right up until we just started flying people more or less in from uh uh cobble uh, without much in the way of uh um uh, uh, double checks uh, uh but you know uh, that was an emergency it's more or less stopped um uh, i'm not sure i've got an answer there uh, uh but i think the, the the only good answer is something that tries to be very careful about who we let in uh that will mean that the first generation of of, of immigrants will probably not be hostile to the United States, which is probably true for the first generation of all immigrants. It's their kids that you have to worry about, that they will grow up feeling, um, you know, with a chip on their shoulder about whatever their identity is. Uh, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I I do worry that we're building a culture in which identity is so important that uh, having a chip on your shoulder about your identity is going to be an increasing, source of conflict in our uh, society.
0: All right. Tom Strand, you get the last question today. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's a very, very broad question. So I was hoping you, you guys can narrow it down perhaps. So I was wondering what, the, what you view the relationship or the proper way to understand the relationship between uh, democracy and transparency and accountability and national security is. So a common refrain you might hear is something like you know uh in order for uh democracy is necessary for elite accountability or policymaker accountability and uh in order to have you know rational democracy or um you know uh, knowledgeable uh knowledgeable uh, democratic body you have to have some level of transparency um and you know maybe you could zoom that in somehow is that yeah you know logical yeah Thanks.
1: so I, I I this is this is an unresolvable tension I, there's no solution I I, I do think um, it, we have we have spent 50 years trying to find um, ways to uh, reassure people that even though they can't be told everything that is done there is somebody who has um, the responsibility to protect the privacy interests and uh, other interests of Americans. Uh, a, and that that set of, uh, that's where the FISA court comes from. Uh, that's where all the oversight committees come from and the inspectors general and the privacy and civil liberties officers. There's a lot of institutions. I, I used to joke back in the nineties that uh, um, a, There were at least six people whose careers would be made if they could find me violating somebody's rights. Uh, And (laughs) I thought that was, you know, pretty good uh, 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 protection. See, no, Uh,
0: I just want to say no lefty hates the FISA court more than Stewart does. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's
1: probably right. I I have real doubts about the FISA court. And I, well, I I won't go into all all of them. Um, So we're going to have to... Renegotiate those institutional uh, 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 rules because the criticism uh, uh, that is coming against national security authorities is increasingly and for the first time coming from the right. Uh, uh, people who believe, you know, the uh, the deep state sabotaged the Trump administration, uh, kicked off the uh, 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 un. Uh, an improper uh, uh, Russia uh, investigation. And I, I think we have to respect that concern, especially since the Russia thing didn't really work out. Um, a, and ask the question, have we got enough controls to make sure that in future there is not a partisan misuse as opposed to a civil liberties misuse of the um, uh, national security authorities. And I think we didn't, we have not done enough. We haven't had that problem until recently. But now we certainly have the perception that that's a problem. And I would argue we probably do have a real problem. Uh, uh, and we need to find ways to reassure people on the right that uh, uh, the entire national security apparatus is not lined up uh, to improperly uh, investigate and intimidate them. Uh, And that's a different set of problems because they don't they don't express their concerns in the language of civil liberties, which we've all been taught to respect. But that's a that's a lefty point of view. uh, And it's always been rolled out in service of left wing groups. Uh, We need to find a way to talk uh, in a respectful way about the concerns on the right that they have become the targets of the authorities that uh, used to be arrayed in the, at least the imaginations of the left against uh, leftist groups.
0: We are going to leave it there. I am not even going to argue with Stuart on this point, oh. however sorely <laughs> I am tempted. Um, Stuart Baker, you, you you're- back. I'm, I'm happy to come back. I-, I You I, should I, come back early and often. I, it's I, a, It's I, great I to the, see your face. Something, somebody uh, said po-
1: that I reminded her of her dead father, and I, I hope I'm, I, I, you know, uh, not completely, I, I, but uh, I... Well, not know, in I, the I, dead I, sense. I never, I never grew up with a father,
0: so I, uh, I'm pleased that I have settled into that role. We will be back tomorrow. Stuart, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. I don't remember. Oh, tomorrow we will have the estimable Jeff Kossef, who is oh. uh a, teaches at the Naval Academy and is, I think it is fair to say, the world's foremost authority on Section 230 authority. of the Communications Decency Act, which he wrote a book about. Uh, and um, and uh, he's a very thoughtful, serious guy who can answer all your 230 questions. That will be 22 hours and 51 minutes from now. And until then, Scott?
2: We can't have fun anymore, but we can have every week, the Cyber Law Podcast um, brought to you by St- Steptoe and Johnson that do, does, not re- do not, does not necessarily reflect Stewart's views or his pets. Uh, but, um, but I will say um, it's a real learning experience. Um, and I want to thank him for doing such a superb job uh, at that. Okay, thanks.